The Women in Media podcast is proudly sponsored by Organic Traditions for spring 2024. Stay tuned for a special deal during this episode. I'm Sarah Burke, and this is the Women in Media podcast. You've heard a lot from radio and television personalities as of lately. So today's episode will take us behind the scenes. My next guest is an absolute powerhouse in her role as vice president of music and live events at Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. Honestly, I couldn't have done my thing at the office without them helping me do this thing at home. There are a lot of people that have helped me uh, be able to manage all of it. Sharing the responsibility and the kudos, right? And, And I remember when the kids were really little, sometimes, you know, I'd go to the park and people would say things about, you know, having a nanny or someone else is raising your kid or, oh, you must not do that. And I used to be quite wounded by it at the time. Um, but, you know, when I look back, it's like, thank God. And I literally couldn't have done it without them. My guest today is Melissa Bub Clark, who's been nominated to come on this podcast by her friend and colleague, Tracy Martin, who we talked to in episode two. Hey, Sarah. Uh, thanks for having me here. Now, this is kind of exciting in that, you know, two worlds that I love, sports and music, collide. How did you get into your role at MLSE? So in 2010, I guess it was, I had just, I was working at Live Nation Canada and I had transitioned from doing a bunch of roles, sort of working up my way up there uh, in marketing. And I'd moved over to corporate sponsorship partnerships. And I really wanted to get into a revenue generating role. And shortly after I took on that role, uh, MLSC and Live Nation entered into a relationship whereby MLSC was taking over the national sponsorship uh, portfolio to become Live Nation's national agency. Uh, so I was honestly day two on the job of moving, you know, after a 12 year career in marketing, moving into partnerships. I got a call. Uh, from Dave Hopkinson at MLSE saying, I want to talk to you. Can you come and meet me? We want to flesh out some things. So I, I, I went up and I met with Dave and I met with Riley O'Connor, the chairman of Live Nation Canada. And we sat down and they kind of rolled out to me how this whole uh, agency relationship was going to work and that I would be sort of part of the plan to move from Live Nation over to MLSE. And that would have unfolded several months afterwards. I was scared shitless, you know, spending my entire life in the music side uh, to go into what, you know, was a very large in comparison by way of um, size of the office, this very slick corporate sports world. Um, Admittedly, I don't know a ton about sports. Um, So it was super intimidating to me at the beginning. And uh, I moved over shortly thereafter and then was immersed in this large uh, sponsorship team. You know, by comparison, I was coming from a, a handful, a team of five or six to a team that was, oh geez, I don't know, maybe 40 or 50 deep. Um, they obviously worked on all the teams, TFC. Um, we didn't have Argos at the time, Leafs, Raptors. And did they ever know their stuff? And it was really the team over there that sort of welcomed me in and kind of took my business acumen from A to B. Uh, and I'm super grateful for that. Okay, so to understand, you know, your background in live music and events too, we have to hear a little more about where you came from and where you started your career, which funny enough, you started at a record label. Yes, I did. At a small label, as you mentioned, Popular Records, and I was a promo rep 
So my job at the time was to drive around to radio stations and go to DJ pools and play the most recent dance record and try to convince them to uh, to play it. I actually have an early memory of going to Chum FM. I had no business going to Chum FM. I guess it was probably 24. And I walked in with my record that I think it might have been Blue by Eiffel 65. And I walked in and saw uh, Barry Stewart, who was the program director at the time. And I asked him, you know, somewhat naively and ignorantly if, if he'd consider playing the playing the record. And he was like, yeah, because you've had the gumption to walk in here and ask me, I'm going to put it on air. So uh, that was my sort of first foray into music. Um, and from there, I took a job as the receptionist for a small boutique concert promoter called Core Audience. And Core Audience would have started up in about 1998, I think was the year. And it was downtown. The record label that I was working for was in Markham. So moving downtown was, I wanted to be downtown. I wanted to be part of the city. I had, after university, moved home with my parents. I was a boomerang kid for a while. So to get this opportunity even downtown um, was a huge thing for me. And I thought it was my way in. It was my, my opportunity to get into the live space. I was spending all of my disposable time and income on concert tickets. And uh, it sounded like a great thing for me. Uh, so I took it on and about three or four weeks into the role, you know, I'd come in early, I'd stay late. I was super keen. I was sitting on the reception desk, listening to all the music. And there was a TV in the reception area that I thought was so cool. It was programmed to much music. And uh, I was speaking to one of the owners at the time, um, a gentleman by the name of Steve Herman, who is now the senior vice president of touring for Live Nation. And uh, he said to me, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to work in the marketing department. And he said, put the phones on Nightline. You're in the marketing department. <laughs> and that was maybe three or four weeks in. And I was so excited. I just got email. So I started emailing people and I'd just been promoted and I was promoted to marketing assistant. And uh, over time, that company then changed hands a few times to SFX and Clear Channel. It was, it was bought by, uh, into that family. And then that eventually turned into what is Live Nation. So one of the early, um, alongside Steve Herman, I had the great fortune of working with Michael Rapino, who of course now is the global CEO. But at some point in time, there was, you know, 10 or 11 of us in a tiny office at Bamblor. So it was this whole mad mix up of luck, um, a little bit of oblivion and ignorance on my part, um, probably some, you know, feistiness and, and um, a, you know, hopefully a good work ethic. And here I am. So would you say that there's uh, a certain piece of advice that you always had in the back of your mind uh, when starting like a new role, for instance, with MLSE? Is there anything that has sort of been consistently in the back of your head for your most of your career? There's certainly things that I've learned over time that I wish I had uh, applied earlier in my career. And that was to pay more attention to the quantitative alongside the qualitative, meaning knowing my numbers, uh, knowing the PL, digging down into the financials. You know, when I was in marketing, I was always, I was always used to, and then moving into sponsorship, I was used to budgets per se. Quite frankly, I'd always spent the money, not been a revenue gener generator to earn the money. 
Um, but it's as my career has advanced and I've spent more time really digging into the business side of it, the financials and become more comfortable with those numbers and been able to speak that language, you know, whether it be in a board meeting or a meeting or with my bosses to be able to talk about the business, what's the ROI, what are we generating, what are the expenses, um, to really be fluent in that language, um, has something that I, I wish I had adopted earlier in my career, but quite frankly, was really intimidated by it and sort of, you know, 20 years ago would have thought it was, you know, kind of par for the course and acceptable to be like, Oh, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't love math kind of. And, um, yeah, I really, I, I wish I had taken that to heart earlier in my career. So I, I now, I now just try to apply that, you know, dig in, know the business side of it, know why you're doing it. Um, I think that speaks to a, a lot of women being intimidated by numbers uh, in their roles in that if you have the numbers to back up your strategy and what you're looking to accomplish with your next goals, then it probably unravels a, a little more seamless than it would with, you know, if you haven't looked at the numbers. And truthfully, I think you're taken more seriously. You know, I think there was definitely an... I don't even know if it was an unconscious bias or a, a conscious bias of me in numbers. Like I, I probably would have quite easily told you that, oh, well, that wasn't my thing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm marketing and I'm not disparaging marketing people. There's a lot of numbers in marketing, but I wouldn't have, uh, I would, I, I would have really sort of, as I said, leaned into the qualitative side of it. Um, but yeah, it is definitely something that, and to your point, I saw a lot of my male counterparts, which the live music industry historically has been quite male, yeah. um, you know, re really sort of drilling down on that. And, and admittedly me kind of glossing over and being like, okay, that's not my, that's not my responsibility. Um, you made but, it your responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. Quite literally. So yeah. did you ever find yourself in a situation where, um, you were intimidated by a certain person and that forced you to look at those numbers in a different way? Yes. I mean, certainly. Yeah. E even from a respect level, knowing, you know, holding people's attention or being able to frame something in such a way that I could get their attention. Um, yeah. And, and, and overall it would have just been the demand of different roles that I would have had. Right. As, as I, as I was, you know, went for other opportunities or I'm not sure, I've been offered other opportunities as much as I've, you know, worked for those opportunities and thankfully been able to come by them. Um, but it, it was, it definitely became uh, more prevalent to me as I advanced in my career, that that was something that I needed to really uh, be able to drill down on and talk to. So for a woman who finds herself in uh, maybe a role that she's not completely a hundred percent comfortable with, and I would almost say that we're never a hundred percent comfortable when we're going for something new. Totally. <laughs> That's part of the beauty of it. Um, what, what's your best advice for um, a woman who might find herself in that position now where she is trying uh, to set herself up for success, but she's very intimidated with what's in front of her? You know, I think it was Tracy had said in her interview about if, you know, something along the lines of if you're not scared, you're not, you know, you're not striving yeah. um, far enough or high enough. And I really believe that. And I think it's normalizing that fear a little bit, um, which, you know, I've been able to do over the past few years, probably because we're talking about it. It's knowing that failure is, you know, there used to be the sort of failure is not an option. Well, it's a fact of life. And, you know, I think again, Tracy said something like, if you're not failing, you're not advancing or something along those lines. And 
again, I really believe that like we, we have to normalize failure and fear. That's just part of it. And like any other emotion that you're feeling, it'll be fleeting. You'll, you'll get past it. And you know, the other side of that is just asking for help and surrounding yourself with really smart people. When I took on this role two and a half years ago, um, Danielle Linsen is a woman that I work with at MLSE and a great finance team overall. Cynthia Devine is our CFO. Um, I currently work with a team, uh, Delvir Chima. There's a, there's, a whole, there's a whole host of people that I rely on. And like, they really taught me this side of the business. There was you know, so much patience and generosity with sitting down with me and, and you know, drilling down on percentages and what, you know, the PL I get to oversee is wildly complicated, but having those people that you trust and don't feel dumb to ask questions and um, just, you know, this isn't my area of expertise and that's okay. And I think at some point I got confused that it was supposed to be my area of expertise. But the reality of it is when you work with other people and you collaborate, it's like, I've got my thing and they've got theirs. And yes, it's on me to learn from them. And, you know, I, I, I need to learn all of those things. But um, relying on the experts, surrounding yourself with smart people, not being scared that they're going to shine and you're not. I defer to them in meetings if I don't have the answer. My CFO asked me a question this morning and I texted her back and said, let me get back to you. You know, sort of taking a beat to, to be able to think about it and, and get the right answer. Um, yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So if you wouldn't mind sharing, uh, just because I, I think you probably have a great story to tell on this note, um, tell me about a failure you learned from. Um. When I think about a time when it wasn't as much of a, a personal failure on me as it was, you know, we had a situation where we were getting very close to confirming a partnership uh, with a company, I won't name who, and we, quite frankly, we put the cart before the horse. We got ourselves out of another partnership in order to be able to accommodate this one. We socialized it. And at the 11th hour, the bottom fell out. And I'm not sure, you know, necessarily there was anything that we could have done differently to save the deal per se, but I think we could have definitely managed it differently. I'm not sure that we could have done anything to actually have saved the deal, to be honest. But when I look back um, to how we had handled it, uh, to how we communicated around it, to how we managed our senior team around it, and quite frankly, how we managed uh, the partner after it didn't work out, there are a bunch of things I would have done differently there. Um, I've certainly learned, A, not to count your chickens before they hatch. Um, communication is always key. And yeah, I, I, I really think in what we do, it's, it's sort of um, managing expectations. The bottom can always fall out in this industry, always. The bottom can always fall out. And I think too, it's knowing that the bottom can always fall out. And I take that a little less personally too. Like it is business and sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And sometimes the bottom is going to fall out without a, a lot of warning. Um, but, you know, obviously having contingency plans is, is, uh, is key. Communication is key. Um, and really not counting your chickens before they <laughs> just keep kind of always asking what if before you need to is yeah and without then you know you can't lead with fear you can't always proceed with oh my god what if this falls apart 
Um, and I've probably been guilty of that too. So it's really, it's really striking the right balance between this might happen. And at the, at the end of the day, in order to great and move, be great and move forward, there is some of that risk. Um, and you have to take some of that risk. And I think what I've tried to learn over time is not to take all of that so personally. Yeah. You, you have to lead with confidence regardless of if the bottom is going to fall out for sure. <laughs> So tell me about um, a project that you've worked on at Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment in the live music and event space that uh, you really had to convince your uh, your team was a good idea that maybe, you know, something something that took a little bit of work to get everyone on board. These are great questions. Because we work with a large team of stakeholders, so there's us at MLSE, there's there's the partners that we work with, there's the um, the stakeholders over at Live Nation. There's a lot of people to kind of get on board. Does it make sense from resources? Does it make sense, you know, from a financial standpoint? Um, there's a lot of people to get on board. And uh, this past summer, during um, all of this crazy COVID-19, which has decimated our industry. We did a project called Budweiser Stage at Home, which I can't take credit for. Uh, Adam Birchall, who I worked with really closely for a number of years, who is now head of music over at TikTok Canada, uh, and Joey Scaleri, and who is over at Live Nation Canada, and Deirdre Malloy, and Kevin Chuby, and Rhea Sethna. There's a whole group of people that put this together. Adam Armit, I can't forget him because he really uh, brought it to life. Um, pitching that idea of taking a bricks and mortar um, you know, concert series down at Budweiser stage and turning it into a national TV show that we did in partnership with Rogers. It took some convincing. It took some convincing, uh, again, with regards to what artists could we get on board? Who would want to do that? Um, would people watch it? You know, people are so used to going down to, to the amphitheater. Would they actually watch? I think there was really some challenge around that time of does everyone have COVID fatigue? Are they sick of virtual events? And totally hear that with the projects I work on too. Yeah. It's like, have we hit a wall? Um, So it wasn't necessarily, I, I, again, I can't really take credit for me convincing the team uh, to do it. We had a, a mighty team who, who took on a lot of responsibility and, and was able to, again, convince all the stakeholders and all of the artists to get on board. We were able to, uh, to bring it to life over eight Saturdays in the summer. And um, yeah. And you had Tara Sloan hosting, right? Tara Sloan hosted. She was just, uh, she was just nominated for a CSA for hosting it. I saw, yeah. Yeah, So we're super proud of her. Um, Yeah, and it was just, you know, in a time where things were feeling rather bleak, um, if we were able to deliver some entertainment to Canadians in all of this and you got to kick back, I, you know, one of the things I loved about it was I got to watch it with my family. Often when I'm working an event, I'm there kind of solo. And I know some people like concerts are, you know, it's a, it's certainly a financial investment. So to be able to kind of kick back on your couch and maybe have your kids join you for a couple songs or whatever. Um, yeah, if we were able to entertain Canadians, you know, for a little while during all of this mess, then I take a lot of pride in that and I'm, I'm super proud of the team for that. It wasn't without its heavy lifting of convincing people to get on board. Yeah, that's a big pivot from what you guys would normally do. Yeah. And I think a lot of organizations have been forced to do mm-hmm. a, a big pivot over the last year. So you mentioned your kids. Yeah. Uh, you're a full-time working woman. You're working from home right now. Yeah. 
while doing this big pivot, how do you manage all the things going on in your personal life too? So I'm super lucky because my kids are now 14 and 12. I absolutely take my hat off to those that are juggling little kids at home that need help with Zoom and snack and everything else. Like I I don't even know how that gets done. And I tip my hat big time. Uh, My kids are are far more, um, you know, independent. So that is, that is helpful for sure. Um, you know, my parents are in the city, so I, 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 I never quite understood the meaning of sandwich generation until the past couple of years where it's like, you know, I'm worried about them getting their vaccine, my in-laws getting their vaccine, is everyone healthy? Mom, do you need help with this? My kids, whatever. It is certainly a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm really lucky to have a super supportive partner, my husband, Johnny. Um, you know, I always sort of say we take the at-home responsibilities in a 60-40, sometimes I'm the 60, sometimes he's the 60. So it really is, I'm not sure I'm saying anything groundbreaking here. It is that whole mentality of it takes a village and I am very dependent on my village. To get to this point, uh, I had two incredible women in our life who are still in our life, um, Esther and Cecilia. They were our in-home uh, nannies who helped us through, I didn't have two at one time, but we, Esther worked with us for a few years and then Cecilia worked with us for a few years. Yeah. And um Honestly, I couldn't have done my thing at the office without them helping me do this thing at home. I was always so grateful that my kids had other people in their lives to love them and, and, and look up to them. And I know that was a really privileged position for us to be in, to, for us to be able to have them. But um, there are a lot of people and a lot of, uh, there is a lot of people in my network that have helped me uh, be able to manage all of it. It kind of speaks to what you said, even from your professional life, asking for help when you need it to help you accomplish everything else going on. Sometimes you have to lean on others. So asking for help when you need it. Exactly. And, and also like sharing the responsibility and the kudos. Right. And, and I remember when the kids were really little, I would have felt sometimes, you know, I'd go to the park. And people would say things about, you know, having a nanny or someone else is raising your kid or, oh, you must not do that. And I used to be quite wounded by it at the time. It's something I I didn't know the term self-care until, I don't know, when when did that become a term? But I've been so comfortable with self-care for so long. And I think I learned that from my mom, whatever it is, sleep, exercise, whatever it is. But like, if you don't take care of yourself, you can't perform you can't perform. And I, I, I did, I, I remember when I had the kids being surrounded by women who it became a bit of a martyr off. Like mm-hmm. the less you did for yourself was the more of a devoted mother you would be. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not signing up for that shit. It's Sarah Burke here, the host of the Women in Media podcast and the founder of the Women in Media Network. Yep. Now there's an entire network. I've been working really hard to get things off the ground. And what would I do without coffee? I can barely function without it. But I feel much better about putting a coffee that's full of superfoods in my body. I've been loving the Focus Fuel Instant Mushroom Coffee from Organic Traditions. And of course, all the ingredients are organic. It's packed with Lion's Mane Mushroom to support memory, focus, and cognitive function, adaptogens to nourish your brain, and MCT powder to boost your energy and improve mental clarity. And before you make that face, no, it doesn't taste like mushrooms. It tastes like coffee actually better than most. There are hints of cinnamon and vanilla, and it is absolutely delicious. Did I mention it also just won Best New Mushroom Enhanced Beverage in a 2024 Brand Spark survey? Want to try the Focus Fuel Mushroom Coffee yourself? 
Head to OrganicTraditions.com and use the promo code WOMENINMEDIA20 for 20% off at checkout. And by the way, that applies for the entire site, not just the coffee. You're welcome. Just add water and get at it. It's almost the same badge of honor people talk about exhausted from work and overworked. Like yeah. a lot of people wear both those things as badges yeah, of like honor. Like a busy off. Stop with the busy off. Um, but, you know, when I look back, it's like, thank God for Esther and Cecilia. And um, again, they're, they're still in my life. And I literally couldn't have done it without them. And I don't know why I would have pretended to have been able to do it without them otherwise, because I wouldn't have been able to. I think so many women struggle with that idea of when they get a nanny, what other women think about it. And you have a full-time job that requires a lot of you and you're putting the right people that you trust around your children to make sure that everyone's getting what they need. Yes. All of that. Yeah. So I want to touch on another thing here. So working in live um, entertainment and events, I think, um, I think back to my last relationship of five years and I was so lucky that as I was coming up in this business that my partner trusted me. I never once felt like while I was out that, you know, he was sitting at home thinking like, oh, well, is she out with a bunch of guys right now? Like we had that trust. Um, maybe you can speak about that with uh, your partner, your husband. Um, has it always been that way? Has there always been a trust? Because it's a hard thing to juggle. 100%. There's always been that trust. And, um, I, I don't know what I would do without that trust because, and it goes both ways. Um, but yeah, like, again, I work in a, a, a male dominated industry. I am out a ton at night on weekends. I travel. Um, and I have never had to feel that I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing or that I can't, you know, I, I shouldn't, I, I've never been guilted out for anything. And it's absolutely, Johnny wouldn't know any other way. That's just the kind of guy that he is. Um, I think, thank God that that's how it sort of worked out because I don't even know I would have had, I mean, I was obviously attracted to him for a whole bunch of reasons. And I'm I'm assuming that's one of them, but I don't even know that I would have had the foresight early in my career to know that how important that would have been. And, you know, when I look back at previous relationships in my twenties, uh, when I was starting out in the music industry and I think about some of those relationships and I think about how some of those boyfriends at the time would have, uh, you know, asked me where I was going or felt kind of insecure or, or, or whatever about it. And- um, Because guys, it's insecurity if it's a problem, by yeah, the way. <laughs> yeah, to- well, totally. Yeah. So yeah, and that's when I kind of go back to being able to do what I do. Like I'm, I'm totally able to do this because he is the way he is and I am the way I am. So early in your career, if we go back to whenever you first cross paths with your husband, um, do you remember feeling a, a certain? <laughs> do you remember feeling a certain way, almost in explaining your career to him or what your goals were? He was he knew it because I I kind of had the best case scenario because Johnny's brother was in the music industry. And still is. Um, he runs. His name is Velo Mazik, and he runs Canada's Music Incubator. And oh, Johnny, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's my brother-in-law. And um, Johnny's very best friend is Tony. Is Tony Zambor, Tracy's husband? 
And they've been best friends since they were in grade nine. So I had this really awesome opportunity. So I, Johnny and I, we kind of, you know, circled each other's ecosystems for a long time. Um, I had certainly partied with him enough, quite frankly, never took him seriously. And whenever I go into those stories, which I'll spare you, but he's always like, and then you married me and had my kids. <laughs> but you know, he had asked me out a few times and I was like, no, thanks. Like I have definitely seen how that went down. And, um, then whatever I, we, we agreed one night in our, we were partying our faces off and we agreed to have dinner together and we had dinner together and not to get all schmaltzy, but honestly, in that first dinner, we had such a time, like we just had such a great time. And I sat and I thought, I'm going to marry this guy. <laughs> and, you know, so many bottles of wine and cigarettes later, which is crazy when I look back in, like in the restaurant, because at the time you could do that. And, um, yeah, and I, I always felt so lucky that he wasn't in the industry. He's got his own career in another industry, but he was surrounded by the industry. So he knew what the stakes were. He knew what he was getting himself into. He knew what I wanted. Um, and, you know, my ambition has, has changed certainly over the years. And I'm, again, I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful that we've both been aligned in, in my, in that ebb and flow, because yeah. after I had kids, like, so the part of me going to MLSE was when it was sort of decided that MLSE and Live Nation were entering into this, this sponsorship arrangement. Um, I was offered the job over at MLSE to go help run it. And I actually originally turned it down because my kids at the time were two and four. And I mentioned earlier, I was super intimidated and I thought, I don't have the energy or the chutzpah right now to go and prove myself in this big environment and work 9 million hours. And I've got these two little kids. And, and uh, at the time, I, I mentioned him earlier, Dave Hopkinson, he was like, well, why don't you come and do it part-time? And I was like, no one does anything part-time in the music industry. I'm like, what? And he was like, why don't you come and do it three days a week? And you know, I did. So I said, okay. And I think probably, and I don't want to speak for him. I don't know that either of us thought that that was going to be a long-term arrangement by any stretch or that I would still be doing this all those years later. <laughs> um, but I did it for two and a half years. I worked in the office Monday to Wednesday. I am super, no one remembers like in the ebb and flow of a career. Sometimes, you know, I, what I've certainly learned is they're not, they're not linear. They don't escalate the whole time. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's pivoted, it's plateaus. It took a left turn. Um, and, but those two and a half years that I was afforded the opportunity to Fridays, I volunteered in the classroom and like got to, got to, like, I, I honestly got to live both dreams and, you know, I was doing it at the time for 66% of my salary because that's, you know, if you were going to work part-time, you got paid part-time. I probably in hindsight would look back and say, I didn't really work part-time. I, I had a Blackberry at the time and I would have been on call and I would have been working. And I think we've evolved a little bit from that too. But, you know, 10 years ago, that still looked pretty damn good. And I am so happy that I stuck in it. Because at the time when I was, you know, what do I want to do? And listen, again, I know there is a ton of luck and privilege in all of these decisions, but to be able to, you know, kind of 
still do what I loved, but I wasn't climbing the corporate ladder at that point. I was just sort of maintaining what I was doing. Um, but to be able to do that for a few years and take the time that I wanted and spend a little bit more time with my kids. And then when Oliver, who is now 12, but when he entered at, at that time, junior kindergarten was half day. So then when he went into senior kindergarten, it moved into full day. And then at that time I went back and I said, okay, you know, the kids are in school full time now and I'm ready to come back full time. And they were like, here you go. And here's hundred percent of your paycheck. And wow. it was this seamless, like, okay, guys, I'm back at it. And then for a time I worked Fridays from home. Like I feel so lucky to have been afforded that flexibility. Um, and yeah, I felt nervous asking for it. I felt, I remember being in a meeting with some colleagues and they were talking about having an 8:30 meeting and my colleague, Jordan Vader looked at me and he said, does that work for you, Mel? Cause I used to do the school run and I kind of sheepishly, but said to him like, no, it doesn't. Can we do 9:30?" And he was like, yep, we can do 9:30." And yes. that's where I think it's a real, like when I say it takes a village, it's like, we have to be not scared to sort of ask and step up, whether you're a, um, a, you know, a parent or not, like to kind of ask of, you know, this is what is going to work for me. And then we need to be surrounded by those allies that even at the time we didn't know that that was allyship, but people that are going to say like, yeah, let's, let's make that happen or let's do things differently or let's accommodate this. Cause yeah. especially in our industry, otherwise there's a big female brain drain. So there's two big things here that you've brought up. And the first is that I wonder how many women are listening to this conversation right now thinking, yeah, I'm ready to get back to work, but I know I don't have the capacity to do it at a hundred percent, but I yeah. really like the opportunity to do some of it and, you know, make my way in at my own pace. You know, there are so many things that happen to, um, physically to a woman's body after mm -hmm. she has children, A, so that's part of it. And yeah. B, you know, regaining your confidence, regaining your trust in your professional, um, capabilities, you know, that yeah. it takes time. It's not something that happens overnight. You have the baby, you're ready to go back to work. Yeah. So I think that's so important for people to hear right now. And the second thing is again, using your voice, asking when you need help or raising your voice to say, I, I know I have valuable input to this meeting, but that's not going to work for me at that time. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm so happy you shared that. Thank oh, you. Thanks. So, you know, for, um, for situations in the past where you have maybe felt not 100% comfortable to raise your voice, how do you talk yourself out of uh, what's going on in the back of your head? Because hmm. I just know I'll kick myself if I don't. So I'm glad that there has been quite a few times in my career where I think if I don't go and address that, it's just going to eat away at me. Um, listening so, to the little voice in your head. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it, and you know, certainly we all have it and you know, it, it is also the good fortune of having being surrounded. I've always had really supportive people mm -hmm. around me and knowing that people have had my back. So, you know, and, and being in, in that, being in a, in a, in that, position is again, a position of privilege to be able to do that. Like yeah. I, I, it's not lost on me that you can't in every job, in every circumstance, you know, raise your voice and be like, that doesn't work. Um, you know, so there's, I'm, I'm sure over the course of my careers, there were times when I, I, I didn't, yeah. but certainly the times that I have, uh, I felt proud of myself 
for doing it. And knowing that it doesn't always work out in the way that you want it to, um, I, I still never sort of been let down that when I have, it's like, I, I, at least I can, if I haven't achieved what I wanted to achieve, but at least I spoke up. At the end of the day, that's what matters is that you tried. And I, I know that sounds a little bit cheesy, but kind of matters. So with this big pivot that we've been talking about, you know, there's all this discussion about the return of live music. And I'm already worried about how I'm going to be when I'm out in public because I'm (laughs) going to be way too emotional about it. I can tell you that right now. Uh, But as a, you know, a vice president of live music and events, what's your situation looking like right now at MLSE? Not a great time to be the vice president of music (laughs) and live events. Um, Listen, our outlook is amazing. I mean, when you, you probably heard it before, people talk about the roaring twenties. Um, you know, our, our calendar, when we look at the, at the, the building holds across, it's, it's, we are three, four artists deep on any given day and, and, and what that looks like. So when we can come back safely, there will be no shortage of live events. And, you know, what I'm actually super excited about equally is during this downtime, you know, I, I touched on Budweiser stage at home before, but the team has turned out a ton of incredible content that we've been working on with our partners, you know, Labatt, RBC, Rogers. Give me, give me an example of, uh, you know, one of those programs that you worked on sort of over the last year while you've had to pause and pivot. Yeah. So the team just worked with the, the team over at Rogers, Fido, and they put together this content series called Off Mute uh, that works with BIPOC and LGBTQ artists. Uh, and really, you know, provides a platform for those artists and engages them in conversations in, in those really important communities. Working with Universal, Jesse Reyes and Savannah Ray were part of the, all of that. And, you know, being able to tell a music story through a sports lens and a sports lens through a music lens is, is incredible. And we've really been able to create these platforms and highlight different artists and work with different artists, you know, share platforms, share conversations and do a bunch of stuff that quite frankly, we weren't doing enough of pre-pandemic. And, you know, even when we're working with our corporate partners, I feel like that has been so inspiring and exciting. And I think some version of that lives on the other side of this too. So yes, live events will be back and hopefully we are all at a concert, like holding hands and crying because that will be me in the first, I don't even know how many shows, just tears streaming down my face. but I think on, you know, as well as that, some of the things that we've been able to do virtually, uh, that'll stick around. And I think, you know, we'll get a little bit of the best of both worlds. It's a metal show and you're like, oh, this is so nice. I honestly, <laughs> bring, bring it on. Cry and sing, sing. At the end of each episode, uh, you may have noticed with Tracy, I'm asking for, you know, those, those other women who have stories that need to be told here. And I'm curious to hear about your list. Yeah, so great question. Um, three women that came to mind. Uh, one is a woman that I've met in the past few years. Her name is Mary DePauli, and she is the chief marketing officer at RBC. And she manages a massive portfolio, um, including music, including golf, you know, lots to do with things on air. She worked for Larry King for a while. Like, she, oh my God. she's got like, she is just a trove of stories, a huge supporter of uh, women, of me personally, um, and a good friend. And uh, she's just got, she's got lots of interesting things to say. Uh, Christy Fletcher is another friend, former colleague at MLSE. She's now the executive director of Music Counts. 
Um, she also comes from a, a crazy hockey family. Uh, her, anyways, I'll let her tell you about that. But she, uh, she is a more than capable um, woman and friend. And she joined. She became the executive director of Music Counts. I'm not exactly sure when. A few years ago now, um, and is very, very respected and has, has done great things for that organization. And Kathy Barnes is an old friend of mine and in fact was my roommate at one point. And she is over at Sportsnet and she has over 20 years of experience behind the camera, largely in producer roles. And she's married to a former broadcaster. And she, you know, I remember when she left her kids when they were super little to go take an opportunity with the uh, Vancouver Olympics. She's been one time and time again, one of the few women behind the camera. And I think she just has um, some really interesting things to tell. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate the stories that you've told here today. And your career is very inspiring. Oh, thanks, Sarah. I really appreciate the opportunity. It was really nice to meet you. And thanks to Tracy for the nomination. I'm Sarah Burke. And if you're new to the podcast, thanks so much for pressing play. Here, I'm sharing the stories of women in radio, TV, news, music, sports, and entertainment. And through these discussions, we reflect on the collective challenges that women face in a male-dominated industry and celebrate the triumphs that happen along the way. If you're into that, please consider hitting subscribe on your favorite podcast service so you'll get a notification when a new episode is published. If you'd kindly follow along at Women in Media Pod on social media as well, you'll find some video from these conversations, announcements about new episodes, and updates on my guests. Up next, by the way, Ivanka Osmak of Sportsnet, who's just returned to work after having her second child. Until then, thanks so much for listening. I'm Debbie Travis. And I'm Tommy Smythe. And this is Trust Me, I'm a Decorator. We're now podcasters. And why did we call it that? Well, you know us as decorators, but we've got lots more to share. We want to talk about travel and relationships. We're going to have amazing guests on. Guests who inspire us for sure. We'll probably talk about design too. And of course, Tommy, don't forget about food. Oh my gosh, how did I forget about food? So please follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or as they say, wherever you get your podcast. And we'll pop right up when we have a new episode. Where's us luck? This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.